Having prayed that prayer in song that the Lord would nourish us by his word, we turn to his word now. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning to the gospel according to Matthew. As I mentioned in my email to the church just a few days ago, this Sunday we're going to launch a new sermon series. This Sunday we're going to set off into the book of Matthew. And I've been looking forward to this for months. It seemed like a fitting thing to launch it on the first Sunday of the new year. And here we are. So here we go. Before I read our passage for us, I do want to say a little bit about the book itself that we're setting off into this Sunday. What about the book of Matthew? You can notice the very first verse of the whole book says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice that very first verse doesn't say anything like, this is the gospel according to Matthew. In other words, this book, this gospel account, it's anonymous. It doesn't say that Matthew wrote it. There's no passage in the New Testament that refers back to this book and says that Matthew wrote it. But I hasten to add these two things. First of all, it is well-attested and widely accepted early church tradition that Matthew wrote. That claim was made very early on, and it was never called into question as far as we know. Matthew was one of the first disciples that Jesus called to himself. He was a tax collector of all things. Also went by the name Levi. And so we do get to know him a little bit in the gospel record. It is a widely accepted, well-attested early church tradition that this book was written by that man. And so we're standing on reasonably solid ground ourselves to accept that he wrote it, and we can refer to that way, and we will. This is the book of Matthew. And then the other thing I'd say is that it's okay that we can't know for sure who wrote this book. If it turns out that early church tradition got this wrong, it's unlikely But if that's the case and somebody else wrote it, that's all right. I've I've said it many times before, and I'm happy to say it again this morning. What matters for our faith are the writings themselves that God has been pleased to give us, and not the claims and theories that surround those writings and that peer into their backstories. The general consensus among scholars and commentators is that Matthew probably wrote his gospel record somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 A.D. The working theory among many scholars and commentators is that Matthew probably relied upon Mark's gospel account in order to write his own, in order to write one that was longer and fuller. Matthew does appear to have written his gospel record with a greater sensitivity toward the interests of fellow Jewish believers in the first century. People have said that all along because of the things that Matthew tends to emphasize in his account. So we can say all of that, just some preliminary remarks, but of course the best way to get to know a gospel is to dive in and read it. So let's do that. I'll read our passage for us now. You can see in your bulletin that I'll read the first 17 verses of the first chapter. This passage with all of the names. And yes, I did listen to this passage this week several times in an audio Bible. 
to verify pronunciations. So listen now to the word of God. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. In Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matin. And Matin, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, To the Christ, 14 generations. So this is the word of our God. Let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your servant Matthew. And for the gospel record that he has given your church, that he has given us. Ultimately, you have given us this gospel record that we might behold our Savior and grow in our faith in him and our faithfulness unto him. And that is our prayer as we set out this morning in our journey through Matthew. Would you guide us and grow us? And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
they say in songwriting that there's a lot to be said for writing an opening lyric that grabs people. You want it to be the case that the very first words that people hear when they hear your song are words that arrest them, intrigue them, draw them in, keep them listening. And that can be true of the music as well, right? The music that accompanies the lyrics. It's not just the lyrics. There are a lot of legendary rock songs out there that are legendary in part because of the opening guitar riff, the music. So the opening matters. And the question becomes, what do we make of Matthew? This book. Of course, it's not a song. It is a book. It's a book of the Bible. It's a gospel account in the Bible. What do we make of Matthew and the way it begins with a genealogy? Are these words that grab us, arrest us, intrigue us? Is this a legendary, memorable opening riff? To our 21st century American ears, it might not sound like it at first. To our ears, it might sound like a rather clinical way of getting started with the thought that you'll eventually get to the good news later on. Getting started with a genealogy. With lots of names, including names of people we don't even know, including names that can be tough to pronounce. Is this how you launch a gospel? But then don't we sometimes find it to be the case, even with a song, take that analogy again, that a song challenges us to stop and think about the way it begins, whether the lyrics or the music. In other words, first impressions aren't everything. Don't we sometimes find it to be the case that a song practically demands that we stop and think and consider and appreciate and then listen again and again so that we keep growing in our appreciation, including our appreciation of how it begins? And that's what we can make of Matthew in its opening lines. Yes, it begins with a genealogy, with this dramatic, climactic, moving, meaningful genealogy. When you stop and think about it, and consider and appreciate it, and do it all over again and again, it turns out that this genealogy, believe it or not, washes over you and touches your soul. This is a wonderful way for Matthew to launch his gospel. And with God's help over the next few minutes this morning, we're going to see why. First, a quick overview of the genealogy here. That claim there at the very end, verse 17, look at verse 17 again. It says this, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is not saying there that there were actually only 14 generations in each of those three time periods. We know that he left some out. And so this is not meant to be a complete comprehensive genealogy, this is meant to be a structured, summarizing 
genealogy that covers a vast sweep of history. The first group of generations gets us all the way from Abraham to David. And so that covers the period of the patriarchs. And then the hundreds of years that they spent in Egypt. And then the exodus from Egypt. And then the wilderness wanderings. And then the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. And then the period of the judges after Joshua. And then the beginning of the monarchy. That's the first group. The second group of generations covers the decline of the monarchy from Solomon to the exile. The third group of generations covers the whole period from the exile to Jesus. So as I say, this is not meant to be a complete comprehensive genealogy. It's meant to be structured and summarizing. Maybe Matthew did it that way to help people memorize their Bible history. Maybe he did it that way to give the whole thing a sense of symmetry and balance as you get into the gospel. Whatever precisely may have been in Matthew's mind as the writer, we can say this much for sure. The very fact that there's design about Matthew's record reminds us that there is a divine designer who's been overseeing this whole history long before Matthew came on the scene. There is a divine designer. And that truth is reflected here in the way that Matthew writes for us. So what can we we learn here from this genealogy? I'll tell you right now three lessons that I want to set before us today. Lessons about Jesus, whose genealogy this is. First is that Jesus is an historical person. The second is that Jesus is a fulfillment person. And the third is that Jesus is the Christ. So those three, he is an historical person. He is a fulfillment person, and he is the Christ of God. So first of all, we can certainly learn from this genealogy that Jesus is an historical person. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who was situated in human history in a real line of human descent because you've got this whole historical flesh and blood genealogy that leads up to him. And there at the end, we're told that he was born of Mary. He really existed in human history, really existed as a man. And so we can say, Jesus is not a made-up person. In other words, he's not the figment of somebody's imagination, like some kind of childhood imaginary friend or a mythical hero figure. He actually lived here on earth. He belonged to a real family. He was part of a real family line. He's not a made-up person. We can say that. We can also say this, Jesus is not a mere idea, which is the way some people have treated him at times. In other words, he's not some kind of ideal man concept that somebody came up with at some point so that we could have something to aspire to, someone to hold on to. Jesus is not a mere idea, we can say that. And then one more, we can say this too. Jesus is not an angel. And that might seem like a strange thing to say about Jesus. He's no angel. But I mean it literally. He he does not belong 
to a class of creatures, that angelic class of creatures like Gabriel. In other words, he's not a figure who remains removed from this realm, removed from human flesh and blood. So Jesus isn't any of those things. He's not a made-up person. He's not a mere idea. He's not an angel. Jesus of Nazareth is an historical person. He was and remains true man, flesh and blood, body and soul. And he is that because the Son of God took to himself a true human nature in history and his life has meaning as a life that's situated in the unfolding of salvation history. And, and the Bible writers use very strong language to make this very clear. For example, John, in John 1, says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John 1. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. That's Galatians 4. Or one more, Hebrews 2. Says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, flesh and blood. That's Hebrews 2. So he's not a made up person, not a mere idea, not an angel. He is, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy, the man, Christ Jesus. And here's why that matters. Brothers and sisters, here's why that matters supremely for us right here, right now. A made-up person cannot save you. A mere idea will not redeem you. An angel, mighty though the angels are, an angel cannot rescue you. Save your soul. You go through every day needing your sins to be forgiven. You go through every day needing strength in the face of temptation. You go through every day needing hope. You need a Savior. Well, if Jesus is going to be that for you, if he's going to be everything that you need him to be, then it's got to be that he's true man, flesh and blood, body and soul. Otherwise, you're lost. We're all lost. We're flesh and blood sinners. Well, then we need a flesh and blood Savior as well as one who's divine. We're body and soul rebels. Well, then we need a body and soul Redeemer as well as one who's divine. And Jesus is all of that. Certainly true. Fictional figures, made up figures can be fascinating and compelling. Ideas and ideals can be ennobling and inspiring. Angels are mighty servants of God. All of that's true, but none of those will save your soul. All that to say this genealogy here at the beginning of Matthew, it matters a great deal. It matters supremely that our faith is an historical faith and that at the center of our faith is an historical person. This is why I put that Machen quote in your bulletin this morning. I want to read from Machen's Christianity and Liberalism what Machen had to say. What you've got there in your bulletin is just the first few lines. Machen wrote, It should be observed 
that if religion be made independent of history, there's no such thing as a gospel. For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. A gospel independent of history is a contradiction in terms. Now listen to how Machen goes on. The Christian gospel means not a presentation of what always has been true, but a report of something new, something that imparts a totally different aspect to the situation of mankind. The situation of mankind was desperate because of sin, but God has changed the situation. I love that phrase. God has changed the situation by the atoning death of Christ. That is no mere reflection upon the old, but it is an account of something new. And then Machen wraps up this way by admitting that, yeah, this happened a long time ago for us. He says, it is true that the Christian gospel is an account not of something that happened yesterday, but of something that happened long ago. But the important thing is that it really happened If it really happened, then it makes little difference when it happened. No matter when it happened, whether yesterday or in the first century, it remains a real gospel, a real piece of news, end quote. That is so helpful for us as we turn to this book that is called The Gospel According to Matthew, The Good News. According to Matthew, Machen's saying, if these things didn't actually happen, if Jesus wasn't an historical person, let's not kid ourselves, there's no gospel to record. There's no good news to report. It has to be that Jesus is an historical person. And here's the good news. He is. So that's our first Now, here's our second. Jesus is also a fulfillment person. Jesus is a fulfillment person. And by that, I mean Jesus himself brings to fulfillment the promises that God made to his people Israel in the Old Testament. And in particular, the promises that God made to Abraham and David. And that rings out in the very first verse. Look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And by the way, you may have noticed toward the end, he's the son of David here in this genealogy in the sense that he's the legal son of David, legal son of Joseph, who's in the line of David. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Jesus didn't descend from Joseph biologically. Matthew's about to tell us that. But he did belong to Joseph's line legally. Jesus was a rightful heir in the line of David. In any case, verse 1 is huge here. Jesus Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He represents himself the fulfillment of the promises that were made to those two men. Jesus isn't just in history. He isn't just important in history. Jesus positively sums up history. Sums up the promises that had been made. That's why I took us to Genesis 12 earlier in our service. 
Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from this place to the land I show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, in Jesus Christ, all of that has come true. Think about what Paul says about Jesus in Galatians. This is Galatians 3. And here's Paul reflecting upon those promises made to Abraham. Paul writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. It's Galatians 3. And then remember what God promised David. 2 Samuel 7. Here's the prophet Nathan relaying to David the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel 7. Moreover, David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your fathers are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yeah, it's a promise that's fulfilled in Solomon. But God's people recognized that that promise pointed beyond Solomon to one who would reign forever and ever. And in Jesus Christ, that has come true. Listen to Peter preaching on Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, it says this, God had sworn with an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That's Peter, Acts chapter 2, saying, yes, that promise made to David has been fulfilled in this Jesus who's been raised from the dead. Promises to Abraham. Promises to David. Here's a passage that brings them both together. This is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when an angel, after an angel, visits him. This is Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Zechariah says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then he says later, And he has remembered the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. There's something about those two men, Abraham and then David, that to remember the promises made to them is to remember so much of what God had promised his people all along. Those two, Abraham, David. And what we're seeing here is that in Christ, all of that has come true. Jesus is the son of Abraham. That means he's the savior for the nations. In Jesus shall all the nations be blessed. And Jesus is the son of David. That means he's the king over the people of God. And he shall reign forever and ever. Both of those are massively significant. Son of Abraham, a savior for the nations. Son of David, a king over the people of God. And brothers and sisters, what does this second point mean for us today? Jesus as a fulfillment person. Well, it means everything. It means everything going into a new year. And we're feeling that this morning, first Sunday of the new year. This happens every January. We go into new year with a host of questions. 
Because there's so much that we don't know, that we cannot know about this new year that's begun. What's 2024 going to hold for me, for my family, for my church? We're all asking those questions. Will I be blessed? Will I be protected, guarded, and guided? Well, think of it this way. God kept his promise to give a savior for the nations in whom all the nations shall be blessed. Well, then God's not going to take that savior away from you in 2024. And God kept his promise to give a king over the people of God and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, then God's not going to take him away from us as a church in 2024. You're going into 2024 with question marks. Of course you are. We all are. Well, God has exclamation points that answer them. Son of Abraham, exclamation point. Yes, we shall be blessed according to God's good ways. Son of David, exclamation point. Yes, we shall be guarded and guided according to God's perfect wisdom. You can go into 2024 holding on to those because you're holding on to Christ in whom all of these things have been fulfilled. And that brings us then to the third of our three points, which is that Jesus, who is an historical person, that was first. Jesus, who is a fulfillment person, that was second. Here's our third. That same Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ. Matthew calls him that three times in this passage. Once at the very beginning in verse 1, twice at the end in verses 16 and 17. Jesus is the Christ The title Christ means anointed one. God had told his people in the Old Testament that one day he'd send them a savior who'd be an anointed one. And God gave his people Israel in the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings who pointed forward to that Christ and Jesus of Nazareth is that one. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure in order to carry out the mission that God gave him. Jesus is the Christ. And what was that mission that God gave him to carry out? His mission was to save sinners for God. His mission as the Christ was to save sinners. And boy, does this genealogy drive that point home. And I say that because this genealogy, with all of these names, is chock full of reminders that God's people have always been sinners in need of a Savior. That, that shines through this genealogy. Stop and think about it. And, and, and the, the folks who are named here, Jesus is a Savior for people like Abraham who at one point failed to believe the promise of God so that he resorted to desperate measures to come up with an heir on his own terms. Jesus is a savior for people like Jacob, who swindled his brother. Jesus is a savior for people like Judah, who was guilty of immorality with Tamar, 
Tamar, who's actually named in this passage. Matthew didn't have to mention her here, but he did. It wasn't customary for women to be named in these genealogies, but Matthew did. Jesus is a savior for people like David, who was guilty of murder and adultery with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And she's also mentioned in this passage. Matthew didn't have to refer to her either, but he did. For that matter, he could have just mentioned her name, Bathsheba, but he didn't. He went out of his way to make it clear that this was another man's wife. And that's just the first group out of the three. After that, you've got that line of kings after David. Solomon, who lost himself in idolatry. Rehoboam, who ruled like a fool. And on and on it goes till Manasseh. Manasseh, who was the worst of the lot. Manasseh was so bad that he's the one who's blamed for the exile to Babylon. And even that fact, the fact that there was an exile, which is mentioned in this genealogy, it serves as a structuring point. Even that fact of history serves as a reminder that this is a people who had long been in need of a savior who is the Christ. The reason there was an exile, a deportation to Babylon, is that the people of God had spiraled downward into sin and idolatry. They were a sinful people, the people of this genealogy. Even the best anointed ones they had let them down, and the worst anointed ones they had led them to ruin. And Jesus is a savior. Jesus is the Christ for a people like that. And then you can take it personally. It's like you're filling in the blank on the form. Jesus is a savior for people like. And then the form says, insert your name here. Jesus is the Christ for people like you and me. Sinners who need forgiveness. And renewal and hope. So it's certainly true. Jesus is an historical figure that we should look up to and aspire to be like. There's no denying that. But before we get there, what he is first is a savior for sinners, a savior who is the Christ, the anointed one of God. So if you've entered 2024, Laboring under the backbreaking discouragement that comes from thinking that you're not good enough to be a Christian. Well, have I got the genealogy for you? You can read these names and say to yourself, Yeah, I have a place here. I have a place here because Jesus is the Christ for sinners like me, sinners who repent. And go back to God. So friends, those three lessons that we can learn this morning about Jesus, an historical person, a fulfillment person, and the Christ, the anointed one of God. So it's certainly true, as I was saying when we got started, it might seem a strange way to launch a gospel with a genealogy, but then you stop and think. You pour over it. You consider and appreciate it. 
And lo and behold, it turns out that Matthew's gospel, Matthew's good news, really does begin with chapter 1, verse 1, not verse 18. Turns out that the gospel starts here with a genealogy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for Jesus, who is called Christ, Son of Abraham, Son of David. We thank you today that he really lived and lives still, united with our nature. We thank you today that in him all of your ancient promises have been realized, and we thank you that they have been realized in him because he is the Christ, the anointed one, come to save sinners, and that is what we are. So we thank you that there is good news, there is a gospel, and we would pray that you would bless us this day and in the days to come as we mine the riches of this gospel record. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.